You know, long ago, I realized that God gave us every portion of his word for a purpose. If you know uh, what that purpose is, then you know where to go in the Bible when you have particular needs in your life. When you have certain situations in your life, you know where in the Bible to go, what to read, what to meditate on, what to pray about and study to be able to address uh, that particular area of life that uh, that portion of God's word addresses. And so uh, this evening we're going to take a walk through First Corinthians. First Corinthians is a letter that um, we could refer to as, as its theme as being the church and its problems. This is the most problem-ridden church in the New Testament. Uh, it was filled with problems, and so God sent a letter to this church because it was riddled with problems to be able to address uh, the situations they found themselves in. Now, the key uh, and the bluff, the bottom line up front this evening, is that God's work is not without problems. Now, that's no surprise to any of us, is it? Churches all have problems. Every church has problems. There's never been a church that didn't have problems. Uh, because all churches are pastored by imperfect pastors. And uh, they have imperfect leaders and imperfect members. And every church has problems. But the key is that God has answers for those problems. He's got a, the ability to solve the problems and answer the questions. Uh, and that's the key we learn from 1 Corinthians. Yes, there are problems. But problems have solutions and answers. Now, how did Paul know uh, about the problems this church was experiencing? Let's uh, let's see a little bit about what is going on. This next slide will show you Paul's second missionary journey. When Paul left on his second missionary journey, he had on the first missionary journey planted churches in modern day Turkey. On his second missionary journey, he immediately went back to those churches to see how they were doing. After checking in on those churches, he tried to go to other parts of Turkey. He tried to go to the north. He tried to go to the south. And the Holy Spirit kept stopping him. That wasn't where God wanted him to go. He kind of meandered across Turkey and ended up over in Troas. And God spoke to him at night and showed him a, a dream, a vision of a Macedonian man. A man from over across the Aegean Sea in Macedonia which would be the northern part of the Grecian Peninsula. And this Macedonian man said, come over and help us. We need you. And so the Apostle Paul took that as a message from God. And so his team sailed across the Aegean and they came to Philippi. Then they went to Thessalonica and Berea. They came down to Athens. They went over to Corinth. When he got to Corinth, he settled in for a while and he spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth establishing this church. After being there for a year and a half, he was ready to head back home to give a report as to what had happened on his second missionary journey. Now, in that boat ride home, he stopped over at Ephesus and he saw this amazing city of Ephesus, one of the most renowned cities of that era. And when he saw that, no doubt, he said in his mind, what a gospel opportunity. If we could get a beachhead for the gospel in Ephesus right on this major east-west trade route. The gospel could follow the merchants all over the place. And so he saw the city, and then he headed back home. Next slide shows us the third missionary journey. On Paul's third missionary journey, he went back through the churches that he had established, but then he made a beeline over to Ephesus. He spent two and a half years in Ephesus, 
uh, establishing the church at Ephesus. They had a great revival. Uh, the gospel spread from that church all over the place. It was one of the most phenomenal missionary accomplishments of Paul's ministries. And so he spent uh, two and a half years there. During the time he was there, he had a lot of contact across the Aegean Sea to the church at Corinth. The contacts that he had with the church of Corinth involved people like Apollos and Titus and Timothy, Chloe, and three delegates from the church who brought him a list of questions, a written list of questions that they needed help with, they needed answers for. And those questions and the the uh, uh, reports and the communication interaction he had back and forth across the Aegean Sea uh, caused Paul to realize this church has serious problems, and they've got lots of questions. John MacArthur wrote in his commentary on, on Corinthians, he said the Corinthians' most serious problem was in not detaching themselves from the worldly ways of the society around them. They could not understand and perhaps did not want to understand the principle of 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Like many Christians today, the Corinthian believers had great difficulty in not mimicking the unbelieving and corrupt society around them. They usually managed to stay a little higher than the world morally, but they were moving downward in the same direction as the world. They wanted to be in God's kingdom while keeping one foot in the kingdom of this, of this world. They wanted to have the blessings of the new life but hang on to the pleasures of the old life. They wanted to have what they thought was the best of both worlds. But Paul plainly warned them that was not possible. This is a worldly church. It's a problem-ridden church. It's a church that's had lots of conflict with the pagan culture in which they were immersed. And, and that interaction had uh, caused them to have lots of questions about Christianity. Lots of questions about the living of Christianity. And so they put them in a written list and they sent three church members to go across the Aegean and meet Paul at Ephesus to present to him this list of questions. So the Apostle Paul in Ephesus sits down to write and does write the book of 1 Corinthians. He writes this book because the church has problems. And ultimately, he's going to try to answer the questions that they have proposed for him. Now, how's Paul going to deal with the problems and the questions? He knows they've got problems. He has a written list of questions. How is he going to address those? Where is he going to begin? Well, I want you to see that it, when you step back and look at the, the, the big picture of the book of 1 Corinthians, you learn some important things about how to counsel people. You, you learn some, uh, some interesting perspectives on how to deal with people that have problems and have questions in their Christian experience. And so we're going we're gonna to back out and look at the big picture. And I'm dividing the book of 1 Corinthians into three divisions. And uh, you see them as one, two, and uh, on the flip side, on the inside, uh, number three, the three divisions of the book of 1 Corinthians as we're going to look at it here for just a few moments. I want you to see division number one, we have a warm welcome. A warm welcome. He says to the people, you have value. Before he deals with their serious problems, before he answers their serious questions, 
he spoke warmly of how God had accomplished an amazing work in their lives and how they had great potential for God as they wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. When we go through those verses 1 through 9 that we read a few moments ago, there's no problem mentioned. There, there's no indication of, of uh, sin or, or uh, difficulty they're having. He brags on them. He thanks God for them. He talks about how God has enriched them. He talked about their future and their potential for the future as they wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. And he very carefully points out that God is faithful and he will bring them to their fulfillment of purpose. He has, 1 Corinthians has a, a warm welcome. And you know when people are in problems and they're in sin and they got questions, before we deal with What's wrong with them? It's good to deal with who they are as a saint of the living God. Called to be saints. Sanctified ones of the living God. And that's what Paul does. He starts his letter by addressing their spiritual position in Christ rather than the state of how they're living. In other words, he talks about who they are before what they're doing wrong. He deals with their standing before God as a saint, before getting into the state of their living for which they will give an account and they have some serious work to do. But before getting into that, he talks to them about the amazing work of God in their lives and the potential of their future and the faithfulness of God in working in their lives In verse number 9, he ends by telling them that their secure position is further guarded by a faithful God. God is faithful. He called you. He's faithful to you. He will bring you through. People need to be reminded of who they are before being told what they're doing wrong. They need to glory in their standing before God before focusing on the state of their disobedience and the misery of their problems. So I, I learned the importance of appreciating people for who they are before focusing on what they may be doing wrong. Now, Paul affirms that. In, he did in verses 1 to 9. He affirmed their place in God's family. He affirmed their possibility of a notable future. Uh, he still hadn't answered any questions. What's he going to do next? He does not begin to answer the questions until he gets several chapters in. Because the questions are merely symptoms of deeper problems in their lives. You ever been involved with trying to help somebody and, and you're, dealing with the, you're dealing with the surface, putting band-aids on and never getting to the heart of what's really wrong and never really help them any? The Apostle Paul does not jump into the questions because the answers to the questions are are symptomatic of a deeper set of problems. The questions are symptoms of problems that are not the answer to the questions. You see, the questions reveal a deeper problem. And he's going to diagnose and treat their two main diseases before he deals with with the answers to their questions. This church has two diseases that are destroying the church. And that's the second division of 1 Corinthians. Major problems that will sink the ship 
The questions, the answers to your questions are immaterial if you don't get these two problems taken care of. These are the root causes, the root problems on the inside that are the source of the surface symptoms on the outside. And so before we get to the symptoms on the outside, we're going to deal with the major problems that will sink the ship if they're not dealt with. These problems are deep, serious church problems. They must be fixed. Now, there are two of them that need to be dealt with. The first of the two are schisms. Schisms. It is a fractured church family. And you can tell from your notes there that that he's going to deal with this from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 4. He's going to deal with this fractured church family. Disunity was present in the church. He jumps right into that in verse number 10 uh, by telling them that they need to be united. And he tells them that he has heard from the house of Chloe, one of the one of the communications across the Aegean Sea. He said, I've heard there are contentions among you. There's problems, there's factions in the church. The church is divided, there's disunity. And the source of that disunity is pride. When you read and study this 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to, to, uh, for the next few chapters to chapter 4, you find the source of the problems was arrogance and pride. They were intellectual people. They weren't far from Mars Hill. Athens, Mars Hill, the intellectual spot of the, the intellectual world where the philosophers would meet on Mars Hill to debate and to hear some new doctrine, some new idea, some new philosophy that man in his great intellect has dreamed up. They're not far, and they're influenced by Athens. And, and these, this church has found itself now after they're a few years old, they found themselves divided over personalities. They were filled with pride. I'm smarter than you. I'm more intellectual than you. Now, I've, I've got it right, and you don't quite have it right yet. And they were divided up into cliques. And he lists the cliques in verse number 12. And, uh, in verse number 12, and he talks about the, the cliques, how they divided themselves amongst human leaders. And some were... were uh, Paul was their hero. Some Peter was their hero. Apollos was their hero. There were even some that we called when I was in Bible college, the pious gas bags that sit back and said, Christ is my leader. I'm better than all of you other uh, peons. And so they, they, they were all divided up. They were divided up over personalities because of the pride of their intellectual pursuits. This is a disease that will ship the sink, uh, will sink the ship if they're not dealt with. The church will never fulfill its mandate if the church is fractured by proud people who don't get along with one another. Now, how's Paul going to address that? Well, he addresses that uh, from the middle of chapter 1 through uh, chapter number 5. He addresses that by showing them that God is wiser than man's intellect. And he did it in a profound way. He argued to them that God's uh, God's wisdom is much higher than man's intellect. And how did he prove that? He proved that in three ways. He, first of all, he proved that by showing them that God provides a salvation that humbles man. He says God chooses the nobodies. He chooses the uneducated. He chooses the ones on the bottom of the barrel to confound the ones that are mighty. Why? 
So the man can't stand there and say, look what I did for God because of how intellectual, how, how great I am. No, but if anything comes of glory to God, it has to be seen that it was God that did that. Not man in his abilities and in his greatness. Verse number 29 says that no flesh should glory in his presence. God designed a salvation that is totally blows away man's intellect. Man has no reason to boast. And then in chapters 2 and 3 and into chapter 3, he argued with them, he presented to them that, that God does not even allow intellectual man to discover truth. Man cannot discover the truth of God through his own intellect and ability and, and, and source of his own uh, you know, thinking. But God's truth is only made available to man through origination, revelation, inspiration, and illumination. It originates not with man's intellect. It originates with God. And then God reveals it to man. He reveals it word by word in the written revelation of God. He inspired certain people to write that down word by word so that we'd have an accurate word of God. And then he illuminates the understanding of man as man studies and reads that revelation. And so man in his intellect can't discover truth. Man in his intellect can't come up with the truth of God. The truth of God is only known because God, where truth originates, revealed, inspired, and illuminated man's ability to know God and to know God's truth. What's, what's the Bible presenting to us? It's presenting to us that we have nothing to be proud of. We have nothing to exalt ourselves over. You that are the, the Apollos clique, you intellectuals, you that are the Cephas, the Peter clique, you, you Jews that have been saved out of Judaism, you that are champions of free grace, you uh, that are pa- followers of me, Paul, and even you that are, that are just with your thumbs under the rappel saying, well, I, I just follow Christ. You need to all realize that our only ability to know God is because God in his wisdom forbade us the ability to discover him through our own intellectual pursuits. That we might bow to his wisdom and thank him for revealing himself to us. You'll study that in chapters 2 and into chapter number 3. And then finally he argues and he presents to the church there in chapter 3 that man, that God does use us. It's not that God doesn't use us. He does use us, but he only uses us as slaves to himself. We are mere servants of God. Paul, Paul planted Apollos water, but it was God who enabled that gospel seed to germinate and give birth to a converted soul. God uses us but only as his servants doing what he tells us to do so that he can accomplish a miraculous work through what we are doing. Schism is a disease that destroys a church's ability to fulfill its mandate. And a fractured church is generally fractured because of of pride and intellectualism and 
I, I'm smarter than you. I know better than you. And, and people can't work together as a team because they've got too many captains that they're exalting because of intellectual pursuits. And 1 Corinthians argues against that. The church must overcome that. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, we must be united as a church family. That's the first major problem that will sink this ship that has to be taken care of. There's a second major problem. We find it in chapters 5 through chapter number 6. It's the problem of immorality. The problem of immorality. The idea that I can serve God and... My physical cravings don't impact my ability to serve God. I can serve God even though I live as a slave to my physical cravings. And that is foolishness that turns spiritual strength into spiritual poverty. The idea that I could be right with God and follow my physical cravings of immorality and it doesn't have any bearing on my ability to serve God. How many evangelical preachers pastor churches for years while flirting with immoral affairs on the side? And it was years before God finally revealed it and they came tumbling down. They preached, they pastored, they opened the Word of God, they preached sermons. The foolishness to think I can serve God and accomplish something for God and my physical cravings don't relate that there are two different worlds I live in. I live in the spiritual and live in the physical. And what I do in the physical doesn't impact the spiritual. What I do in the spiritual doesn't impact the physical. That's where they were living in Corinth. And Paul wrote to them about this being a problem that will sink the ship. David Pryor, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, said, We recall that Corinth was a sex-obsessed seaport. Hardly a Corinthian convert would have been left uncontaminated directly or indirectly by sexual immorality of one kind or another. Its tentacles would have clung tight and its poison run deep. History shows that strong temptation in sexual matters is one of Satan's most frequent tactics in attempting to quench spiritual vitality. So the Christian who teaches a Sunday school class on Sunday and surfs, Immoral websites Sunday night at midnight will always sink a ship. It will always sink a ship. This is not a surface question that has to be answered. This is a root disease that will sink the ship if it's not dealt with. And so in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul told them that immorality must not be tolerated It must not be tolerated. You discover immorality in the life of a church member, that must be dealt with. That must be judged, uncovered, and they must be removed from membership. And he said, you that take pride that in your church, we we are enlightened. We We don't get upset about things like that. Chapter 5 condemns that thinking, that you would tolerate that, that the church would tolerate known immorality in the membership. That must be dealt with. 
It must not be celebrated as a virtue, as if displaying a liberation from a demanding and stifling restriction on my freedom to indulge in any appetite my physical body has. No, no, this is not, this is not a virtue that you tolerate sin in your enlightened cultural understanding of life. This is not a virtue. This does not display a positive liberation from a stifling restriction on freedom. No, this is sin that must be dealt with. Judge them, remove them from the church family. That's what chapter 5 says. When he gets into chapter 6, he talks about the fact that we're going to judge angels one day. You, you say, well, we can't judge one another. What do you mean you can't judge one another? You're going to judge angels one day. If you can judge angels later, you can certainly judge an immoral church member now. And so... In chapter 6, he encourages the church to act internally in the church family when dealing with such problems that will rob the church of its strength. He also dealt in chapter 6 with the whole deal, the, the thought, well, what's the big deal about our bodies and its cravings? God made me, created me a being with these cravings. So they must be of God. So what's the big deal of, of, these, uh, of my actions based on these cravings? And so chapter 6 ends with this, this amazing discussion about how we sin against our own body when we don't obey God in His moral purity. And he even said, don't you understand? In verse number 19, what? Know ye not? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we have this great statement of how that God owns our bodies. It's not my body. It's God's body. And I must make sure that what I do with this body that belongs to God conforms to the teachings of God as to what it is to live in, in moral holiness. I don't have liberty to live the way I want to live. God owns me, spirit and body. And the church had such a deep disease, because, partly because of the culture when we were in Corinth. We learned a little bit about the culture. We learned a little bit about what it was like in that day. We could study the culture. It was so depraved. And it had such an impact on the, the Christian membership of the church. And, and therefore, this letter was written a strong letter, a harsh letter. So now, having dealt with the two foundational issues, the two foundational diseases which are destroying the church... The missionary pastor must now begin to answer their questions. And so the third division of the book is answering the questions. And, um, and that's on the flip side. And you see multiple questions that have answers. From, verse, from chapter 7 through chapter number 16, there are multiple questions. You see, living a Christ-centered life in a pagan culture generated lots of questions. Well, what about this? What does God... How does God view this situation? The, the majority of the church here 
did not come out of Judaism. They did not have an Old Testament biblical foundation of who God is and of the holiness of God and the Levitical sacrifices and the seriousness of sin. And they didn't have that backdrop in their cultural understanding. They've gotten saved out of paganism. And so there's lots of questions. What does God say about this? And how about that? And, and how about this? And, and so it generated lots of questions that the membership had. And, and uh, so they sent Paul questions. Paul said, you got questions. God's got answers. And it is vital that we learn God's answer and accept God's answer. Now, you can follow from chapter 7 on. I put the references there in the little worksheet. You can follow the phrase now concerning and the word now to find the questions. Chapter 7, verse 1 kicks it off. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. So he begins to answer the first question. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols. And he begins to answer that question. Chapter 11, verse number 2. He says, now I praise you not, brethren. And he entered into another question in verse number 17. Now in this, and he enters into another discussion. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. Chapter 15, and in verse number 12. He said, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead. And in chapter 16, verse number 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is a stepping through a written list of questions that had been mailed or had been delivered to him. And he begins to answer some of these questions. They're interesting questions. The first question is all about marriage. Hey, is marriage worth it? Is it better to be single? If I've been married, but I'm no longer married, my spouse has died, should I get remarried? Should I stay single? And, 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 he, and in this is in this current distress, in this current situation our world is in, should I really consider marriage or should I stay single? Interesting questions about, about the married life. And the Apostle Paul shares thoughts about the, the, uh, the marriage life and how God views different aspects of the marriage, uh, married life. And then in chapters 8 to chapter, to the, right at the beginning of chapter number 11, one of the most profound answers to the question of liberty versus license. Liberty versus license. What am I at liberty to do? Or what am I under license to do? Freedom versus the law. Liberty versus license. John MacArthur said the basic problem that confronted the Corinthians in these chapters faces all of us. The issue is, how far does Christian freedom go in regard to behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture? The question of liberty versus license is discussed in an amazing presentation in chapters 8, 9, and 10. You see, earlier, the, the particular question that came up is, down at the meat market... They're selling meat really reasonable because it's meat that had been offered at one of the idol temples here in Corinth as a sacrifice to their gods. And now they've taken the rest of the animal, they've butchered it, they're selling it in the meat market, and there's a, it's really good price. 
Is there anything wrong with eating this meat that was once offered in sacrifice to an idol? The Jewish, the people with some Jewish background were appalled at the thought of that. Those with no Jewish background didn't see any big deal. Hey, cheap meat? Why not? This problem came up on Paul's first missionary journey. And when he got back off the first missionary journey, they went down to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem council that met to discuss the relationship of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because after the gospel spread beyond the basis of Jews, people that had an Old Testament understanding of God, and began to go international to Gentile countries, that raised issues. That raised questions. And so when Paul came back from his first missionary journey, and there was some, some uh, deep concern by Jewish believers that Paul's going off the deep end. He's out here telling Gentiles that they can just... They can just thumb their nose at the Mosaic law and just... And so it became controversial. And so they had a council meeting and Paul went to it. And the end result of that council meeting was you all that are going out internationally, you reaching Gentile people and they're getting saved and you're starting churches. Now, they don't have to be circumcised. But tell them, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And they made a rule. You can read it in Acts chapter 15. They made a rule. Just obey the rule. And that sufficed. But now years later, in Corinth, a simple rule doesn't suffice. Have you ever noticed when you're raising kids for a while, you can tell them to do it because I told you to do it. And that suffices. The day comes when that's no longer sufficient. You will not prepare them for life if you raise them. Just do it because I told you to do it. Then you begin to sit and reason. You begin to explain the reasons why the rule's in place. The alternatives and the problems it brings. You guide them to think so that they can think through the issues and come up with the answer that you want them to come up with. I was talking to a dad not long ago and dealing with a, a teenage uh, member of the family. And, and the dad told me, he says, you know, this is a... It's, it's, we're beyond the point of just do it because I told you to do it. And so now uh, I'm, I'm working on being able to help my teen understand the ramifications and understand all of the possibilities. And I'm, my goal is to get them to make their own decision. And for that decision, the decision that I made for them that they don't know about yet. I want them to be able to reason and come up with the right decision, not just because I told them. What to do? Well, that's what we see playing out here. It was good enough to just have a rule in Acts on, you know, as they were just starting to evangelize the Gentile world. But now that's not enough. And so chapters 8, 9, and 10 is an amazing discourse of helping people think through the ramifications not just what you can get by with and still be a Christian, but what are the ramifications of your decisions and leading them to make a better decision than just, I'm at liberty to do it. No one's going to tell me what to do. And so he ends this amazing uh, discussion in chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, 
He encourages the people in verse 31, whatever you do, make sure you're doing it for the glory of God and not because you just want to do it. And then he said in verses 32 and 33, don't cause others to trip over your exercise of what you think is freedom to do what you please. Give no offense. And you know the word offense, the old English word offense means to trip. Don't call someone to trip. Who? The the Jews, the unsaved Jews. Don't cause the Gentiles, the unsaved Gentiles. And don't cause the saved Jews and the saved Gentiles who are in the church membership at Corinth. Give no offense to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. The unsaved Jews, the unsaved Gentiles, the saved Jews and Gentiles in church membership. Don't let your decision to do what you want to do because you're free to do it. Because God nowhere says in a specific statement, don't do this. So I'm at liberty to exercise my liberty and my conscience. He says, don't you cause people to trip and stumble over your exercise of your own freedom. And it's as if in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, now, if you're not mature enough to reason through chapters 8, 9, and 10 and make wise decisions, if you're not mature enough to do that yet, then just follow me. Paul had already told them in chapter number 10, I won't eat the meat. If it causes anyone to stumble, I won't eat the meat. He said, if you aren't able to make a mature decision, just follow me as I follow Christ. There was one of our members, one of our men in the church mentioned to me, you know, within the last year, he said he remembered a preacher early in his life preaching to teenagers at a youth conference and said to the teenagers, until you're old enough to develop your own convictions, ride on your parents' convictions. Ride on your parents' convictions until you're mature enough to develop good convictions on your own. And it seems like that's what Paul is saying here. You need to make sure what you do is not for your glory, it's for God's glory. You need to make sure that what you do doesn't cause unsaved or saved to stumble over your exercise of what you have the right to do. And if you're not able to make those decisions, just do what I've already told you I do. And don't eat the meat. So he, he, what a question. And then he gets into chapter 11, are men and women equal? That's a pretty interesting question. And uh, then he gets into the Lord's Supper and he says, is there a right way or a wrong way to observe the Lord's Supper? Talks about that. Chapter 12, he opens up what is now a Pandora's box. At that time, it wasn't so much so, but it has to do with tongues and the charismatic movement. There was no charismatic movement in the 1600s when our King James Version was translated. And so... Uh, That uh, helps, the reality of that helps us in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says now concerning spiritual gifts, and the word gifts is in italics. You notice the word gifts is in italics? That's in italics because that was the way the King James translators alerted their readers that there is no corresponding word in the Greek New Testament. We've supplied that word for smoothness of reading or clarity of reading. And in their uh, best judgment, they supplied a word which helped to understand, and, uh, and they put it in italics because they were honest. Now, if you, if you have a Bible that has the word gifts and it's not in italics, that's a problem. If you have a 
Bible app with the King James Version Bible and your Bible app does not have that word in italics, that's a problem. That was in italics because in the 1600s, it clarified the thought. Today, it confounds the thought. These chapters aren't about tongues and spiritual gifts. It's about how to be spiritual. Now, concerning spirituals, brethren. Now, concerning spirituality. And when you go through chapters 8, uh, or chapters 12, uh, through chapter 14, the whole flow is setting the people to understand what it means to be a spiritual person. And being a spiritual person is not our abilities to utilize spiritual gifts. It has to do with the fruit of the Spirit displayed in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. Spirituality is not gifts. Spirituality is fruit. Amazing discussion in chapters 8 uh, chapter 12 through 14. And then the resurrection chapter, chapter 15. Uh, man, what a statement about the necessity of the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, uh, we're still in our sins and we are of all men most miserable. And then the last question is, should I give money at church? And yeah, you ought to give money at church. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. You ought to give money every Sunday when you get together, he told them. That puts him into the conclusion. And in his conclusion, I mean, he's a missionary. What do missionaries do? Missionaries travel. And so he concludes this letter by sharing with them some of his travel plans. He has great opportunities there in Ephesus where he is. Yet he's got great adversaries there. And he has, through his missionary journeys, come across some great people. Talks about the house of Stephanus, the first fruits of Achaia. They were the first ones that got saved in Corinth. And he said they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They were addicted to ministry. He had great opportunities, great adversaries, and some great people that he had come across in his missionary journeys. So, what's the book of 1 Corinthians all about? It's about a church and its problems. And what do we learn from 1 Corinthians? We learn that you deal with problems by first affirming the value of people. You may have problems, but you have value. You have value to God. You have value to me. You have value to your church. You may have lots of issues, but you have value. And helping people begins by affirming their value. And then it involves getting to the root of what the real problems are. It's not questions about the resurrection and giving money and and whether marriage is good or bad, the real problem is that they're proud, intellectual hypocrites fracturing the church into a bunch of little cliques. That is a serious disease. And the second problem is they are immoral. And that is a serious disease. So, what do I learn? I learn first, I affirm people, you have value. And second, I look for the root problem that has to be dealt with. Before worrying about little symptoms on the surface. And once those root problems are taken care of, then we can look at questions you have. People often ask questions, though, but what they need is not the answer to the question they asked. What they need is much deeper than that. If you deal with what's deeper, then the time will come when the question can be addressed and answered. That's what I learned from 1 Corinthians. 
you ever wonder how to deal with problems in the church, go back and read and study 1 Corinthians. It is an eye-opener at dealing with problems in a church.